A young woman went missing along a desolate highway. The case became known as the Lil Miss murder in reference to the vanity plate of the car she was driving. But to her family, she was Lisa Marie, and the journey for answers would take over 14 years. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you're a returning listener. Remember, Crime Lines is also on YouTube. I post these podcast episodes, and every so often, as I have time, I post videos. I do have a recent one on the Summer Wells case up now if you want to go check that out. On to today's episode, my friend Jess provided a lot of the background research for this episode, so I want to thank her for her work. Local journalism in the Casper Star Tribune and the Billings Gazette were huge sources, as were court documents. Let's start with Lisa Marie Kimmel, born in July 1969 in Tennessee. Her father, Ron, was stationed with the Marines there, which is why she was born there, but she didn't live there long. By 1972, they were in Billings, Montana, where Lisa was raised with her younger siblings. As a teenager, Lisa got a job at the fast food chain Arby's. Her mother, Sheila, was actually the director of operations in that area, while 14-year-old Lisa, of course, was just a store employee. But she actually really loved the job. And I think seeing her mother work in the fast food industry, but at the corporate level, inspired her. Sheila's job meant that she spent a lot of time in Denver, Colorado. Denver is a good seven or eight hours from Billings, so she lived in a company apartment there while she was in town. And that's another way Lisa followed in her mother's footsteps. After she graduated from Billings Senior High in 1987, Lisa moved to Denver as well. She was managing an Arby's restaurant in the area and was soon promoted to unit manager. Her parents did encourage her to go to college, especially after she was awarded a scholarship to pursue accounting, but that really wasn't what Lisa wanted, at least not yet. She liked the pace of working in the store and not in an office, and she didn't want to go to school to just end up doing something she wasn't sure she wanted to do. Her parents respected her decision to continue her path in the restaurant industry, though they saw in the big picture that some college would probably benefit her in her career. But they decided to go ahead, give her this gap year to work and figure things out before they brought up college again. They knew Lisa was strong and independent, and she was also focused on her goals, so she was going to do it her way. Her mother said that she'd been that way since birth, and it only became more pronounced as she got older. At 16, Lisa wanted a waterbed, so she bought one on credit and paid it on time until it was paid off as quickly as she could manage. When she decided she wanted a brand new car, she went out and bought it on her own. It was a black 1988 Honda CRX, and Lisa drove it home before anyone even knew she went out to buy it. She just did it on her own. She even paid for a personalized license plate that said Lil Miss on it, which was a nod to a family nickname given to her by her grandmother. Honestly, when your teen is that responsible, you tend to trust their decisions, even if you had a little bit of a different plan for them. 
Plus, Lisa was going to be living in Denver, where Sheila was half the time, so a parent was nearby if she needed anything. While living down in Denver, Lisa would drive home to Billings, Montana whenever she had a chance, and she was heading home on the weekend of March 25th, 1988. Lisa had a few things she planned to do while she was in town. Obviously see her family, but she also had a friend who was in the hospital and she wanted to visit, and she planned to load up her car with some more of the things she had left at her parents' house. She was making the move-out process complete. But a third item on the agenda was to introduce her family to a new boyfriend, Ed. Lisa had met Ed through mutual friends who did live in Billings, and the two clicked and started seeing each other, though due to the seven-hour drive between Ed's home in Cody, Wyoming, and her home in Denver, they mostly talked on the phone and wrote letters back and forth. The initial plan for that weekend was for Ed and Lisa to meet in Casper, Wyoming, which was the halfway point between them. They were going to hang out with some friends before they headed up to Billings. But then the Casper plans just kind of fell apart. Friends were busy. Lisa was eager to get to Billings, and they changed the plan. They decided instead Lisa would drive all the way to Cody to meet Ed late Friday night, and then on Saturday they would drive to Billings together, getting there at some point in the late afternoon. This change in plans was actually pretty big, to be honest, Lisa was doubling her drive time, and because she worked until about 3 on Friday, she would be driving by herself through remote areas really late at night. When the plans changed, Lisa's mother, Sheila, who was in Denver at the time, suggested that they drive back to Billings together. Sheila had a plane ticket to fly home for the weekend. She had plans to go skiing while Lisa was in Cody with Ed. But since Lisa had never driven to Cody before and it was a long drive, maybe it would be better to have another person with her. This is a classic mom move. Drastically rearrange your own plans to make life better for your kid. So Sheila offered this new plan to Lisa, but Lisa's car was a two-seater and she was picking up Ed on the way. So Sheila said maybe they should take her car and Lisa said no, it would be fine and it would be better if they just stuck with their plans. Sheila sat down with Lisa, they went over the map to be sure Lisa knew where she was going since it wasn't like Cody was directly between Denver and Billings. She would have to change highways and go in a direction she wasn't so familiar with. After they went over all of that, Lisa took Sheila to the airport and Sheila flew back to Billings. On Friday, March 25th, 1988, Lisa left work around 3 p.m. Records showed that she was on the phone around 4 p.m. with Ed. According to Ed, Lisa was just telling him that she was running a little late and she planned to leave around 5 p.m. We don't know exactly what time Elisa left her apartment, but around 9 p.m., she was three and a half hours north of Denver near Douglas, Wyoming. We know this because she got pulled over. She was going 88 miles an hour, which is 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. Lisa was ticketed and told to pay $120 on the spot because she was from out of state. Jess, my researcher, noted in her notes on the case that this sounded super fake to her, 
But this is how it works in some states. In some states, you have to carry cash on you to pay the ticket immediately. Alternatively, you could just obey the speed limit. But should you choose to zip along on those long stretches of highway in a different state, you need to be prepared to pay. They do this because there is a good chance that people from out of state won't show up for their court dates or pay their tickets. They can issue a warrant for you if you don't pay, but traffic warrants from other states are more or less useless. Wyoming isn't going to extradite you from Colorado over a $120 ticket. There's little they can do to force you to pay for the ticket when you're out of state. So they make sure you pay while you're still in the state. And if you can't pay, they will arrest you. And then you sit there until someone pays the ticket. With online payments and even Zoom court, you are a little more likely to be let off the hook with a promise to appear or promise to pay today than you were back in 1988. But it's still not a guarantee. Be sure to carry cash with you if you intend to speed. Anyway, Lisa only had $40 in cash on her, so the officer did follow her to a nearby ATM so she could take out the rest of the money. But the ATM wouldn't take her card since it was from a different bank. Today, the machine would just take your card and charge you a $3 fee for the honor of using the machine. But this is something I actually remember from when I was a kid. A lot of ATMs were just service for customers of that bank and they wouldn't take other cards. The patrolman at this point had a choice to make. He could have taken Lisa to jail on the spot, and that is what he normally would do. But Lisa was young, she was 18, she was soft-spoken, she was very polite, and he figured there was a good chance Lisa would pay the ticket. So after Lisa promised she would mail in payment for the ticket, the officer decided to let her go. He gave her directions on how to get back onto the interstate, and she drove off. This was a little after 9 p.m. There are some reports that Lisa stopped for gas or possibly at a grocery store in the Casper area around 10 p.m. or 10.30, but as far as I can tell, this was considered an unconfirmed sighting. And after this, Lisa is off the radar. She never made it to Ed's house in Cody, Wyoming. In the four hours of highway driving between where she was pulled over and Ed's home, she disappeared. Ed had expected her around 1 a.m., and he fell asleep waiting on her. When she hadn't arrived by 7.30 in the morning, he started calling around. He didn't get an answer when he called Lisa's apartment, so then he called the Colorado Highway Patrol and told them that Lisa had gone missing driving from Denver to Cody. Then he called the Wyoming Highway Patrol, told them the same thing, gave her make and model of her car, the usual things that you would report. But it's important to note that these were not missing persons reports. These are noted as overdue arrival calls, not missing persons reports. At the time, there was a waiting period before you could report an adult missing. One thought Ed had was that maybe Lisa stopped for the night in Casper since she had left Denver so late. So he got in touch with their mutual friend down there, and she hadn't seen Lisa. So the odds that Lisa stopped and stayed in Casper seemed pretty unlikely because surely she would have stayed with her friend. Ed also tried to call Lisa's parents to see if they knew where she was, but they were out skiing on that Saturday morning when Ed called, so they didn't answer. 
It wasn't until they got home in the early afternoon that Lisa's parents, Sheila and Ron, got a call from Lisa's boss in Denver. Apparently, Ed had called him looking for Lisa. Ed called everybody, and then everybody tried to call everybody else. So there were a lot of phone calls, and not one person had seen or heard from Lisa since she had left Denver the day before. But Sheila, who talked to the boss, actually didn't take it that seriously at first. She and Ron weren't expecting Lisa for another few hours at the earliest, so she assumed Lisa was probably with friends or driving. She didn't think Lisa being out of touch for this period of time was that unusual. But then 15 minutes after hanging up with the boss and wondering why he seemed so concerned, another friend who Ed had called rang Sheila and said Lisa was actually really missing. She had never made it to Ed's. No one in Casper had seen her either. As all these calls were happening to the Kimmel's home, Ed decided to go ahead and drive to Billings to see what was going on. While he was in Billings, he did manage to get in touch with Sheila and Ron, Lisa's parents, and he drove out to their house so they could all figure out what to do next. So imagine the first time you're meeting your girlfriend's parents and you are having to plan a full-on search for her. Sheila called the Wyoming Highway Patrol and asked that the overdue arrival get changed to an attempt to locate. When the Wyoming Highway Patrol ran Lisa's information, they found that report of Lisa being pulled over and sighted near Douglas, which gave the family a smaller area to search. Not a small area, to be sure, but definitely smaller since they knew she had made it at least from Denver to Douglas. The first assumption when someone goes missing on a long drive is that they broke down or they were in an accident. That had actually happened just a few months before around Christmas time when Lisa was driving home. The accident was minor and Lisa and her car were fine, but I'm sure that's what was in her parents' minds at the time. The family was not pleased with this 72-hour wait that they had in Montana for the police to consider Lisa missing and do their own full-scale search. So the family did a full-scale search. They got a small plane to fly over the highway Lisa would have driven along, hoping to spot her car from the air. They flew from Cody to Douglas using one route, and then they flew back going a different way in the hopes they would find her. While the plane was in the air, her father was driving different routes between Cody and Douglas on the ground, hoping to see something. Ron would pull over whenever he saw a ravine or an area a car could have gone off the road. Wyoming is mostly desert and mountains, particularly in this area. There are not a lot of trees or groves of trees, at least. So you generally have a pretty clear view from the highway. It's not like he had to stop constantly like you would in a more treed area. But by plane and by car, they found nothing. A big issue, of course, is the white area where Lisa could have gone missing from. Not only did it make it a big area to search, it made it a jurisdictional question mark. This area included four counties and multiple cities. 
That's a lot of jurisdictions to work with, but luckily the family had a private investigator friend who was able to get them in touch with various departments and alerted them all to Lisa's disappearance even before she was officially reported missing, which the PI also helped with. They got Lisa reported missing on Sunday night when the family's efforts to find her failed. Like I said, at the time, Montana had a 72-hour waiting period, and it had only been 48 hours. But that PI friend of the family, he had been a deputy in the Yellowstone County Sheriff's Office, so they were able to waive the waiting period basically as a favor to a colleague. The next day, on Monday, March 28, 1988, missing persons posters that the family had made up and printed were distributed, and Lisa's father, Ron, decided to do the driving search one more time with the flyers in hand. He stopped at rest stops and handed them out to truck drivers, asking them to take them and distribute them as well. Lisa's mother, Sheila, she focused on getting the media involved. Five days after Lisa was last seen, on March 30th, 1988, the Casper Star Tribune printed an article about Lisa's disappearance. They mentioned some of the places witnesses had called in saying that they saw Lisa's little Honda. These sightings were from south of Billings, Montana, all the way up north until you're practically in Canada. But there was really no evidence Lisa had ever made it out of Wyoming. Because Lisa had a vanity plate, rather than the usual randomly generated numbers and letters, you'd hope that they would have gotten fewer false tips than an average case. But one investigator said people were calling in pretty much every little black Honda they saw. There were 350 reports of sightings of Lisa's car within the first two weeks of the investigation in four different states. Not a single one of them could be confirmed as Lisa's car. And with what we find out later, it's almost sure none of them were. There was an early lead that did seem pretty good. It came from two independent witnesses, which is why it seemed like a pretty solid sighting. Both of them said they saw Lisa and her car at a 7-Eleven convenience store around noon on the 26th, the day after Lisa was last seen. But this 7-Eleven was in Buffalo, Wyoming, which is on the way from Denver to Billings if Lisa decided for whatever reason not to go pick Ed up first. But if she was headed to Cody, she would not have gone through Buffalo. So the family themselves did not put much stock in the sighting. But most of the sightings were just too generic in nature, to be sure. There was a call where someone said they saw the car and there was something hanging from the rearview mirror, which Lisa did have something hanging from the rearview mirror. However, so did a lot of people. The investigation would show that a lot of the tips were actually of a similar car that was one year off in model. The driver was a man from Montana who traveled extensively through Wyoming and Montana. He worked with the police to give the where and when of his travels, and he definitely accounted for some of these sightings. There were also two other similar cars in the Casper area where 15 people reported seeing Lisa's car the night she went missing. It was almost impossible to rule out which of those sightings were Lisa's car and which could have been one of those similar cars. It took a lot of man hours to follow these tips, 
something that law enforcement agencies in both Montana and Wyoming were struggling to provide. In the late 1980s, when Lisa went missing, the two states only had about a million citizens combined, in spite of being two of the top 10 largest states in land mass. So it's a lot of physical land to cover without a lot of law enforcement to do it. So a fair amount of the searching was organized by the family, the community, volunteers, and though the family did not ask for financial help, a lot of people came together to help fund the costs. And as search after search turned up nothing, the family and the investigators all believed foul play was involved. If Lisa had gotten lost, broken down, or been in an accident, she or her car would have been found by then. The suspicion that foul play was involved turned out to be correct, and it was confirmed on April 2nd, eight days after Lisa disappeared. It was around 2.30 p.m., and a man named Greg was fishing along the North Platte River in Casper. He was there with his son, a friend, and then the friend's child as well. Greg stepped up the side of a bank and looked over, and there he saw a woman's body in about 18 inches of water. Greg had just heard a news report about a missing woman from Montana, and he immediately connected it to this body found. He and his friend first confirmed that the person in the water was definitely dead, and then they got the children out of there to go report this to the police. Fortunately, the kids were in a spot where the body wasn't visible, so they didn't see anything. When the news broke that a body was found in the Casper area, the police said they were unable to immediately identify the body, but everyone was making the same connection Greg did, that this was Lisa. And it would only take a day or two to make a positive identification. This was 18-year-old Lisa Marie Kimmel. And it was obviously a homicide. Lisa's body was found wearing just underwear and socks. The black and white sweater, jeans, and black flats she was last seen wearing were missing. Lisa had a severe head wound that had caused a skull fracture and brain swelling. That would have been enough to first render her unconscious and would have been fatal within minutes. However, the killer did not wait for that. He then stabbed her six times. Five of the stab wounds were in a circle on her chest, and the sixth was to her upper abdomen. All six stab wounds hit major organs and would have individually been fatal. The cause of death was the bleeding, internal and external, from those stab wounds. Due to the lack of defensive wounds, it's believed that Lisa was struck on the head first and then stabbed. She made no attempt to block the knife, probably because she was unconscious. It is also possible it was because she was bound. Though she wasn't found with any bindings on her, there were marks indicating that she had been tied up at some point. A search of the area led the investigators to a bridge about a quarter mile from where Lisa's body was found, and it is called the Old Government Bridge. On that bridge, they discovered blood that matched Lisa's blood type. It was theorized that Lisa had been taken to the bridge, struck on the head, and once incapacitated, 
stabbed, and thrown into the water. This bridge is interesting because it's not in regular use. A newer bridge runs parallel to it, and that's where car traffic goes. That's where the road is. To get to the old bridge, you have to go off-road a bit on this path, and it's just not in use. Someone passing through the area may not even know that there was an access point to that bridge, but someone familiar with the area would definitely know about it and would also know it wasn't in use and there was no chance of a car just happening to pass by and see him. That led investigators to believe that the killer was someone local to Casper or at least familiar with the area. According to Unsolved Mysteries, there were witnesses who saw headlights on the bridge around 2 a.m. That would be five hours after Lisa got the speeding ticket. Initially, that led the police to believe that Lisa had been killed the night she went missing, but the evidence didn't entirely back that up. The North Platte River is full of cold, cold water. That cold water then preserved Lisa's body, making it hard to tell through decomposition how long she had been dead for. She had been missing for eight days, but there were signs she may have been in the water for only 36 hours. It had initially been reported in the media that there were no signs of sexual assault, but this was untrue. There were signs of sexual assault, plus they found semen. And while Wyoming was not doing advanced DNA analysis in 1988, DNA analysis was being done in law enforcement. So they knew not just to collect the evidence, but they also knew the proper way to preserve it. But DNA is like fingerprints, only useful if you can match it to someone. Finding Lisa's car was vital to finding her killer. The first thought was that the car was likely dumped somewhere near Lisa's body. After all, why would the killer risk getting caught driving it or the paper trail of selling it? Searches were done by land and air of the back roads of Casper, but like all the other searches, they found no trace of the car. Private citizens searched with their own planes and farmers checked the far reaches of their properties to see if maybe it was dumped somewhere, maybe in an old barn, but they never found it. Tips just kept coming in with sightings of this car all over the West and up into Canada. All of these tips needed to be followed up by the Natrona County Sheriff's Department because that's where Lisa's body was found. They had jurisdiction. The sheriff at the time was a man named Ron Ketchum, and he assigned two detectives to the case. They interviewed and re-interviewed potential witnesses who thought they saw Lisa. They saw her with a man. They saw her with two men. They saw her by herself. They made composite sketches of the people who may have been with Lisa, but none of those sketches were ever released. They were determined to just not be reliable enough. One of the sketches actually looked a whole lot like a local man who drove a similar black Honda as Lisa. And he even had a wife with a passing resemblance to Lisa. So who knows how many of the sightings were just this man and his wife. Within six months, the investigators had compiled over a thousand tips and had about 16 suspects they were actively looking at. Like two men who, when arrested for a burglary, had stolen Casper plates on their vehicle. They had been in Casper on March 25th, but this lead went nowhere. 
In March of 1989, the case aired on Unsolved Mysteries, and the nationwide attention on this case generated tons more leads. But it seemed everywhere the detectives turned, they just found a dead end. Rewards were offered from a number of sources and eventually combined to a single fund of $25,000. It was a reward that would never be claimed. It would later be converted into a scholarship fund in Lisa's memory. Lisa's family wanted the case to be turned over to a federal task force because they didn't feel like the sheriff's department was able to keep up with the volume of tips. But Sheriff Ron Ketchum refused. He more than refused. According to the Kimmels, Sheriff Ketchum told them that they weren't the victims, Lisa was. And if they kept trying to get the federal task force formed, then he was going to arrest them for obstruction of justice. So you could say the relationship between the sheriff's department and the family had broken down. But the thing was that the detectives assigned to the case also wanted the help. They knew they had more leads than they had manpower to follow up on, particularly after the Unsolved Mysteries segment. The task force would bring in federal resources to solve the case, a case Sheriff Ketchum was putting tons of pressure on them to solve, and one they wanted to solve for the sake of the Kimmel family who they had become fond of. It took a little over a year, but a task force was eventually formed, not with Sheriff Ketchum's consent or cooperation. The family got the ear of the right people, and the U.S. Attorney's Office stepped in. They basically went over the sheriff's head. The federal investigator who was put in charge knew what he was walking into, and he tried to smooth things over with the sheriff. He wanted to explain that he wasn't taking over the case. He was joining an investigation in progress. He thought if Sheriff Ketchum heard what they could and would do to help the investigation, he would be more willing to work with him. Instead, Sheriff Ketchum wouldn't even return his calls. But fortunately for the case, the federal investigator and the detectives got along very well, and they worked side by side. One angle that was pursued pretty aggressively at this point was the DNA from the semen found. It was the early 1990s, and now, with the FBI being involved, they had access to the forensics lab in D.C. The investigators collected samples from anyone in contact with Lisa around the time of her murder, so much so that the federal agent was nicknamed the vampire because of how many blood samples he collected. One person tested early on was Lisa's boyfriend, Ed, who had already been more or less ruled out based on his alibi and other evidence. But now he was formally ruled out when his DNA did not match. Another person they tested was the patrolman who had stopped Lisa for speeding. He had an audio recording of his interaction with Lisa, and it did show that he let her leave. But he could have doubled back or pulled her over again, or maybe something happened after the tape recorder was switched off. When asked, he immediately volunteered to do the DNA test, and he too was ruled out. And then they decided to DNA test someone no one would have expected. It came from a tip that was called in after Sheila Kimmel had done a radio show talking about Lisa's case. 
The tipster said she saw Lisa pulled over on the night of her murder in Natrona County. And the person who pulled her over was Sheriff Ron Ketchum, the same sheriff who tried to keep federal investigators from coming in. The same person the family said was aloof at best and hostile towards them at worst. And Ron Ketchum had, very near the two-year anniversary of Lisa's death, attempted suicide by overdose. Ketchum recovered, and he was treated for depression afterwards. This having happened near the time of the anniversary of Lisa's death was only noted in hindsight. This tip and Sheriff Ketchum's behavior made the family question if there was more going on here. By this point, he had left his job at the sheriff's department. The investigators did interview him and asked about the night Lisa went missing. Ketchum said he was not on duty. However, the dispatch records show this was not true. He was on duty that night. So the question was, is he misremembering or did they just catch him in a deliberate lie? The investigators then asked Ketchum for a DNA sample. And if you think he was not happy with the federal agent before this, just imagine now that he was being told he was basically a person of interest. According to the agent, Ketchum blew up at him and refused to cooperate. He refused for four and a half months until there was a serious threat of a court order. A court order compelling a DNA sample would make this whole thing very public. And at that point, Ketchum agreed to the test. And it did not match. Why all the odd behavior with the family around the case? Why refuse help from the feds, even when his investigators were asking for the assistance? Why refuse the DNA test for months if he knew he didn't have anything to hide? From what has been said about him, Ron Ketchum was a troubled and complicated man, and he was one who kept his issues to himself. Whether it was his time in Vietnam or his time as a police officer or some other issues he never talked about, no one really knows what was going on with him. Nor is it, outside of the context of this case, any of our business. In May of 2000, Ketchum did complete suicide 12 years after Lisa's death, and in spite of rumors and whispers, it was not over guilt because he was involved in Lisa's murder. He had been completely cleared, and whatever his struggles were, it wasn't with this. The investigators had already moved on to other suspects, like an inmate in Oregon who promised information if he could make a deal with the authorities. In the end, it was clear he knew nothing. There was a drug dealer pointing the finger at some rivals using information that had leaked out from the investigation to back up his claims. This, again, didn't pan out. And then there were also hints of a ritualistic aspect to the killing. Lisa had been stabbed five times in a purposeful pattern and a sixth time near the center. This wasn't some frenzied attack. If you connect five points in a circle, you can create a pentagram. There was a cultish group in the Casper area at the time, and some wore robes with a similar pattern to Lisa's wound pattern. 
About 20 people belonged to this group, and they cooperated with the investigation and were eventually ruled out. But the occult angle spread through the area like gossip tends to do, and by the end, the story of what happened barely resembled the truth. There were graphic rumors about missing organs from Lisa's body. So then the police started getting tips related to that, something that wasn't even true. At least they could rule these tips out pretty quickly and not waste as much time on them. Now, in 1992, the FBI reviewed the case and issued a confidential report on their findings. It has since been made public. The most interesting thing I found in it was that they were pretty sure there were two people involved. Very likely two people directly involved, but at the very least, there was a killer and a second person who helped get rid of Lisa's car. They also said they didn't think Lisa would have stopped for a hitchhiker or someone who had broken down. As a young woman alone on the road, she would have been cautious, and that was in Lisa's nature. I mentioned earlier she had a minor accident when she was driving home at Christmas time. Well, when a county worker stopped to try to help her, Lisa barely cracked her window enough to speak with him because she recognized she was in a vulnerable position alone on the side of the highway. It was possible there was a staged incident like a fender bender, but it seemed most likely that Lisa was abducted when she stopped either at a rest stop or a gas station. As for the killer, the FBI said they believed that he or they felt no guilt, no remorse over the killing, and likely committed similar crimes already and would go on to commit more. The killer was a local with limited relationships with women and was likely under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Now, this list of information on the killer was interesting, but it didn't really help identify him in any way. It would take another decade and DNA to find out who did this. The match may have been made sooner if the databases were refined, perfected, and connected like they are today. While Wyoming started collecting DNA of anyone convicted of a felony in 1997, they did not connect to CODIS, which is the federal database, until 2002. And because of the backlog of DNA to enter, it did take some time for most cases. Except Wyoming investigators had Lisa's case at the top of the list for entering into CODIS, and they immediately got a hit in July 2002 for a federal inmate named... Dale Wayne Eaton. The investigators spent their time learning everything they could about a man they would only call a person of interest at the time. Dale Eaton was born in February 1945, making him 43 years old at the time of Lisa's murder. He was 57 years old when he was identified. He had a criminal record that extended into his juvenile years where he was a chronic runaway. His first major violent crime was in 1961 in Greeley, Colorado, when he was just 16 years old. Dale had sold a woman some watermelons and offered to deliver them to her home. When he got there, she saw that the watermelons were rotten, so she refused delivery and refused to pay for them. Dale reportedly told her he needed the money, but she said she wasn't going to pay for rotten fruit. Dale then asked her if he could get a glass of water before he left, and when the woman turned around to go into the kitchen, he stabbed her in the back and fled. He was caught the next day. The woman did recover. 
Dale was sent to a reformatory and then to the Colorado Psychiatric Hospital. He was diagnosed with depression, disturbed sleep disorder, and low self-esteem. They found him to be immature for his age and that he had difficulty relating to others. Dale was then referred to services and placed at a correctional facility where he could learn a skill. He became a welder, which would become his profession after his release. However, Dale continued to have problems relating to others and often left or was fired from jobs due to workplace conflicts. Three of the conflicts were actual assaults, and he was obviously fired from those jobs. Dale eventually married a woman named Melody, and they had three children. The marriage lasted for 15 unhappy years. This time was marked with more instability and violence, with occasional separations between Dale and Melody. There was even more job loss, and they often lived without basics like running water or electricity. One of the Eaton's three children was removed by the state when he disclosed that Dale had sexually molested him. One of the other children later said Dale was physically abusive, but then the third child said he wasn't abusive at all. So we have three kids with three different experiences with their father. Eventually, Melody left Dale for good in 1986. Dale said he was suicidal at the time over the breakup, so he was committed to a hospital where he was again diagnosed with depression. After being released from the hospital, Dale moved to a family property in Mineta, Wyoming. This property was undeveloped. It had a few buildings and a converted bus that Dale used as a home. And when I call it a converted bus, what I really mean is all the seats were ripped out. The only things in the bus that you would even marginally consider creature comforts included a small propane stove and a bed. There was no electricity, no water, no utilities at all. Dale took to hunting, scavenging, and occasionally taking an odd job to survive. He did have some neighbors across the street he was friendly enough with, and they allowed him to use their shower occasionally. But other than a shower a month or so, Dale's hygiene didn't exist, which also made it difficult for him to get or keep a job. Other than his neighbors, Dale did have a relationship of sorts with the daughter of a co-worker he had met while he was in Utah. The woman's name was Carrie, and she lived in Nevada. So they didn't see each other very frequently. She said she never saw the mean streak in Dale that others reported, but she did call him Junkyard Dale, and though they occasionally had sex, they didn't really have much emotional intimacy. At some point after Lisa's disappearance, Dale did give Carrie a diamond ring. He didn't seem to have the means to have purchased it himself, and their relationship hadn't progressed to the expensive gift stage. But Lisa had been wearing a diamond ring when she went missing. It doesn't seem like Carrie still had the ring, so they couldn't connect it definitively to Lisa's missing jewelry, apart from the timing. It's worth mentioning, but not exactly a smoking gun. 
after Lisa's disappearance, Dale stayed on the property in Mineta for a while, but then moved around the West a bit. Over the next several years, he lived and worked in various parts of Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Nevada. Now, Dale was arrested in September 1997 for aggravated assault, and this story is a bit wild. A couple named Scott and Shannon Breeden were on a road trip with their infant son when they had some car trouble in Red Desert, Wyoming. Dale Eaton pulled over to help them and offered to drive them to an auto shop that he claimed his brother owned. They piled into his van with the baby, and as they drove, Dale said he was getting tired. He asked Shannon if she would drive while he went in the back of the van and slept. She said, sure. When Dale got into the back of the van and Shannon started driving, Dale pulled out a gun and ordered Shannon to drive down a dirt path. Shannon did as she was told, but realized they were in danger and getting further from the road were getting into more isolated danger. So she hit the accelerator and jerked the wheel so that Dale lost his balance and fell. She told her husband, Scott, to take the baby and jump out of the van, which is exactly what he did. Scott then hid the baby under some brush and went back to where the van had come to a stop. At this point, Shannon was out of the van and running with Dale in pursuit. He eventually caught up to her and had a knife in his hand. He attempted to stab Shannon. It was about this time that Scott had caught up to them, and he saw Dale's rifle on the ground. So he grabs the rifle, and he hit Dale with the butt of it. Dale went down. Scott grabbed the knife and stabbed Dale. Even that wasn't enough to take Dale down. So Scott fired a shot at him, but it missed. Dale said the rifle would blow up if Scott tried to shoot it again. And Scott didn't know what Dale was talking about, and he didn't want to take a chance that he was actually telling the truth, so he didn't fire the gun again. Instead, Scott used the rifle to beat Dale until Dale stopped getting back up. Dale eventually laid there and said he was done. So Scott, the baby, and Shannon got into Dale's van, and Scott yelled to Shannon, run him over, but she was so focused on just going to get help. Believe it or not, Dale was not in great shape, but he was still alive when the police got there to arrest him. And I'm a little afraid of Scott and Shannon, but also want to meet them because I am in awe of them. It's because they were absolute heroes fighting for themselves and their baby, Dale actually didn't do very much except try to kidnap them, try to stab one of them, and then got his ass beat. When he was arrested and going through the legal process, he did not appear to be mentally stable. So he was eventually given a plea deal where he could plead guilty to aggravated assault. He spent about three months in pretrial detention, and then he got a two to five year suspended sentence to be served in a halfway house in Casper, Wyoming, and he had to follow a number of strict rules designed to help him get his life back on track. Or on track at all. At 53 years old, Dale Eaton hadn't been on track for more than maybe five consecutive minutes during his adult years. 
And this wasn't going to last much longer. About two months into the sweetheart deal where he avoided prison, Dale hopped into his van and took off, leaving the halfway house. And yes, this is the same van he had tried to kidnap a family in. They had given it back to him. Dale was on the run for about two weeks, and his van was spotted and he was arrested. Dale had violated the terms of the suspended sentence, obviously, so that got him five years prison time in state prison. When he was arrested, though, he had a rifle with him, and that made him a felon in possession of a firearm, which is a federal charge. Federal charges meant a DNA sample was taken and entered into CODIS. In October 2000, Dale was given parole on the state charges, and then he was turned over to the federal government to deal with his sentence for the firearms charge. He was sent to Colorado to serve his time there. And two years after that, Wyoming, connected to CODIS, uploaded the DNA of Lisa's killer, and Dale Eaton's name popped up. So that's our background information on Dale. The investigators took the evidence, primarily the DNA evidence, and got a search warrant on the property where Dale had been living at the time Lisa was murdered. A neighbor told the investigators that Dale had dug a large hole on his property with a backhoe around the time Lisa went missing, claiming it was for a septic tank, but no plumbing ever went in. At this point, it had been 14 years, so the neighbor didn't remember exactly where the hole had been dug, and there were a few spots of disturbed ground. After checking a couple of those spots on July 20th, 2002, they found the hole they were looking for. Buried six feet down was Lisa Kimmel's car. The VIN matched Lisa's registration and a piece of her Lil Miss license plate was found. Though the car was found on Dale's property and his DNA was found on Lisa's body, the authorities continued to only refer to him as a person of interest to the media for months. They were behind the scenes building their case, and they had several months to do it. Dale was in prison for at least another year, and it looked like he might be in there even longer. Back in September 2001, Dale was charged with manslaughter after he punched his cellmate so hard an artery ruptured and the man died. If Dale was convicted of that, he would be given even a longer sentence. So the investigators had time to process their evidence. They searched the bus Dale had sort of converted into a home. They tracked down the truck he owned at the time, even though it had gone through a bunch of owners. They were just really hoping to find some more solid evidence against Dale. In the bus, there was a small amount of blood found, but it was too small and too degraded to test and the truck didn't yield anything useful. And then Dale Eaton was acquitted on those manslaughter charges. So he was slated for release from federal prison in June 2003. Time was running out here. Dale had absconded from probation before. They certainly didn't want that to happen again. The DNA match and the car found buried on his property was definitely a strong case. So in April 2003, Dale was charged with first-degree murder, premeditated murder, aggravated robbery, first-degree sexual assault, second-degree sexual assault, and aggravated kidnapping. He was held without bail. 
The state announced they were seeking the death penalty, and this case went to trial in 2004. I do just want to note here that though the FBI analysis of the case initially said they believed two people were involved, no one else has ever been implicated in this crime. So the state had a jailhouse informant who came forward claiming that Dale confessed behind bars and said Lisa picked him up and offered him a ride. When he made sexual advances towards her, she ordered him out of the car, and that's when things turned violent. Whether the jailhouse informant was lying or Dale was lying, it's pretty clear someone was because it's very, very, very unlikely Lisa Kimmel picked Dale up. Lisa Kimmel was five foot three on a tall day. She maybe weighed 110 pounds. She was a fairly cautious person. Would she have picked up a 300 pound full grown man in the middle of the night? She didn't do that. It's much, much more likely that Lisa pulled over at a rest stop and was abducted at gun or knife point. And there is actually a little bit of a clue as to which rest stop that was. Dale Eaton had no running water on his property, and he often used the facilities at the Walton rest stop. This is halfway between his home in Mineta and Casper, Wyoming. Lisa would have had to drive past that stop on her way to Cody. It's possible, even likely, that this is the point of contact for the two. The prosecution told the jury that Lisa was actually held by Dale for at least two days, but possibly up to a week before she was killed. That Lisa had been held for days as her family frantically searched for her was very shocking and upsetting information to those who followed the trial and had not heard that information before. Another piece of information that we hear at the trial was about a note found on Lisa's gravestone in Billings in October 1988, six months after her body was found. The note read, Lisa, there aren't words to say how much you are missed. The pain never leaves. It's so hard without you. You'll always be alive in me. Your death is my painful loss, but heaven's sweet gain. Love always, Stringfellow Hawk. If you are as old as I am or older, you may recognize the name Stringfellow Hawk. It was the name of Jan Michael Vincent's character on the 80s TV show Airwolf. Lisa's family and friends were immediately put off by this note. No one they knew would have used a fake name like this. Lisa didn't have some inside Airwolf joke with anyone. Yet this note definitely sounded like someone who felt her loss profoundly. It was suspected early on that the killer had actually left the note. The handwriting on the note was compared to Dale Eaton's and found to be consistent. In court, when this testimony was given, Dale had an outburst. He said he could prove where he was the day the note was left. Now, the note is honestly the least of the things Dale Eaton should be worried about providing an alibi for. Maybe the night of the murder would have been a good option, but either way, the defense couldn't do much to counter the note. They couldn't find a handwriting expert who disagreed with the state's analysis, or at least not strongly enough to exclude Dale from having written the note. The contents of this note weren't really terribly damning, except for the fact that 
that Dale shouldn't have known Lisa. He shouldn't miss her since he never met her, unless he was the one who killed her. So tying this note to Dale was pretty big. Not as big as the car being found on his property or his DNA on her body, which were obviously the stars of the trial. And the defense knew that. They knew they had a losing case, so they tried to mitigate more than deny. They argued that this was not first-degree murder, that this was second-degree murder, basically not eligible for the death penalty. Bottom line, that's what they were getting at. This was going to be a hard sell because it wasn't just that the defense had to convince the jury that the prosecution hadn't proven premeditation required for first-degree murder. Wyoming has a felony murder law, which makes any homicide committed while committing another felony a case of first-degree murder. So the defense had to convince the jury that the state hadn't proven the other felonies. In this case, that included the robbery of Lisa's car, the sexual assault, and the kidnapping. The only way to do that is to say to the jury that the state failed to prove that Lisa didn't go with Dale willingly. One way to do that would be to show that it was in Lisa's nature to go off with strange men in the middle of the night, which wasn't going to happen because it wasn't in her nature to do that. Another option the defense had would be to provide some character witnesses for Dale to show that he wouldn't have done all that he was accused of. And finding people to testify as character witnesses for Dale was difficult. Even some of those who have said they couldn't see Dale murdering someone weren't exactly willing to swear to that in court. The defense basically just had to point out the lack of evidence that an actual kidnapping, rape, and robbery had happened, even though I think there is enough circumstantial evidence to prove all three, and the jury agreed. Dale was found guilty on all counts, and the fight to save Dale's life moved to the penalty phase. The defense put up some important information for mitigation, showing Dale's mental health issues and his overall impairments in functioning within society. He was given the Global Assessment of Functioning test, and he scored a 31. 91 is considered the start of the normal range, so this indicated a major impairment. The psychological experts for the defense testified that Dale was under extreme emotional disturbance at the time of the murder. Some of Dale's family members did testify to mitigating factors. They said that Dale's father was abusive, and one relative said he picked on Dale worse than the other children. But the defense had some issues with this as well. They had more people who would and could testify that Dale's father was abusive, but these same people had some piece of information that would actually hurt Dale, like testimony about his own violent outbursts. So the defense team really couldn't put them on the stand for mitigation. The jury then heard from a doctor that Dale had confessed to him about killing Lisa, but this story was a new one that hadn't been heard before. Dale said he came home on March 25th, 1988, to a car sitting on his property with what he thought were two people inside. He thought he was being robbed, and since he was already in a bad mood, according to him, he pulled out his gun. Dale then found that it was just Lisa in the car, so he forced her into his converted bus 
and held her for a few days so he wouldn't be alone for the Easter holiday. He did admit to both raping and killing her. Now, there is an issue with the story. This wasn't Easter weekend that year in 1988. It was actually the following week. And then another issue is that this never happened. Even if Lisa got hopelessly lost, she wasn't going to end up on Dale's property waiting for him. That didn't happen. In the end, the jury determined that there were enough aggravating circumstances, there were three, to support the death penalty, and they found that there were no mitigating circumstances. They unanimously voted for the death penalty. The judgment and sentence were entered into the record on June 3rd, 2004, and Lisa's parents then filed a wrongful death suit against Dale. He had nothing, but they didn't want anything. They just wanted to make sure that he never had anything in the future. Now, to say Dale had nothing is overstating it a tad bit. He did have his makeshift bus on a plot of land his family gave him. It was worth roughly the amount of change you can find in my couch right now. But with this judgment against him for wrongful death, the Kimmels took the property and then they turned it over to the fire department for a training session. They torched every structure, including the bus where authorities believe Lisa was held against her will. They burned the whole thing to the ground in what had to have been an incredibly cathartic moment, both for the family and the community. And as with any death penalty case, there have been a lot of appeals I will tell you 400-page appellate documents are a great bedtime read, but I'm just going to summarize it, mostly because I personally think Dale Eaton was a serial killer, and I want to have some time to discuss that before we wrap up. So this appellate process followed the same pattern that we always see. An execution date would be set, and then it would be stayed pending the appeals. Almost all of Dale's appeals were denied until 2010. In 2010, Dale applied for a writ of habeas corpus claiming ineffective assistance of counsel at his sentencing. The U.S. Supreme Court has been clear that a defendant has a right to a full investigation of their life to look for any kernel of mitigating circumstances before they can be sentenced to death. And Dale is saying here that his attorneys did not do that. So let's get into Dale's life and the details that were not necessarily explored at his initial sentencing hearing. Dale Eaton had grown up in abject poverty, one of several children. The children rarely received basics like adequate nutrition or medical care. Dale's father was an alcoholic and, according to family members, abusive. And we know the jury did hear that part about him being abusive and Dale being a target. But what they hadn't heard was that Dale sustained a head injury during at least one assault, something that had not ever been treated. Dale's mother apparently tried to protect her children, but she was severely mentally ill herself. She would later be diagnosed with schizophrenia. In fact, at the time of Dale's juvenile arrest for stabbing a woman, his mother was in an institution after she attempted to burn down their house. At some point in his childhood, an aunt and uncle tried to step in to adopt Dale, and that was something his parents initially agreed to. But after two weeks, his father insisted that he return home, not because he wanted his son back, but because he needed Dale to work and help support the family. Dale showed signs of developmental delays and possible learning disabilities 
as a student. It's hard to say how much of his school performance was that and how much was his unstable upbringing. The family moved regularly, so he would just be dropped into whatever grade. He was finally promoted to the fourth grade at an age where he should have been in the sixth grade and then spent only 15 days in school for the entire year. But then they moved again. School records weren't always submitted when he showed up at a new place. And somehow he made it to the eighth grade, even though his education was far below that level. This unstable childhood and history of mental illness should have been more fully explored and presented to the jury, according to the appellate court. So Dale was granted a new sentencing hearing based on this appeal. The state had 120 days to hold that hearing, or Dale's sentence would automatically become life without parole. But here we are in 2021, and that hearing is still on hold. It was initially put on hold while other appeals went forward in relation to the trial, not just the sentencing. Those appeals have all been denied. The U.S. Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. So then Dale's attorney said he needed a mental health evaluation done to see if he was even competent to be resentenced. According to his attorneys, Dale is mentally ill and extremely paranoid. He spent 30 days in a psychiatric hospital being evaluated in April of 2021. If he is found competent, Dale will then return to court to be resentenced in a sentencing hearing that has been on hold for over a decade. So yes, we just spent an hour covering a solved 1988 case, and I still am waiting on updates and will probably have them by the end of the year. Such is the way with this appellate process. But here's the bottom line with resentencing. Wyoming has not executed anyone since 1992. Dale Eaton is now 76 years old. The taxpayers of Wyoming are spending a lot of money to keep this man on death row just so he can die of something else that isn't the death penalty. I have strong views on the death penalty. I also have strong views on not wasting money. And those positions are in agreement with each other here. The end result of this process will be the same. Dale is going to die in prison, and he's not going to be executed. Just save the time and money and let him have this life sentence. And maybe use it as a bargaining chip. Dale Eaton is in prison. He isn't getting out. But he's in prison for all of the crimes he has committed. A lot of people, including me, including the FBI, don't think so. The initial FBI report, before they even had him as a suspect, said it appeared he had done this before and would likely do it again. And we know Dale attempted to kidnap a couple and their baby nearly a decade after Lisa's murder. It's absolutely preposterous to me to believe that these were the only two instances. Lisa's parents believed that he killed others. They tried to meet with him in prison to talk to him, but he denied their requests. He has also denied the requests of investigators who have suspected him in some of what have been known as the Great Basin Murders, believed to be the work of two or more people. These are about 15 to 20 murders that occurred from 1970 until 2000 that happened in all the states I already mentioned that Dale moved between. Lisa Kimmel's case is considered one of the Great Basin Murders. So is the Amy Bechtal case. 
Amy went missing when she was on a run in Lander, Wyoming in 1997. Lander is in an area Dale was known to both work and camp in at the time. A lot of people, including investigators, have suspected Amy's husband of involvement in her disappearance and presumed homicide. However, a tip did come in from Dale Eaton's own brother saying that Dale was camping in the same area Amy was running at that time. You will rarely read a write-up on Amy's case that doesn't also talk about Dale. He, however, has refused to say anything about the case. Dale has only been convicted of killing Lisa Kimmel, but he is on the person of interest or suspect list of up to seven other murders. That number does vary based on who you ask. As a serial killer, tracing Dale's whereabouts would be very difficult. He had no bank accounts, credit cards, or any of that. He paid cash when he had it, and he would be out of touch with people for periods of time. Because Dale didn't live a conventional life, He barely even had utilities in his name, so identifying where he lived and when is very tricky. When I looked into the possibility of Dale Eaton as a serial killer, I was thinking I need to send this to Josh Hallmark from the True Crime Bullshit podcast. Maybe he could cover this for a season, but I realized there is no trail to follow like he did with Israel Keys and with Kelly Cochran. So while Wyoming fights over whether Dale Eaton belongs on death row or not, it seems we will always have a question mark about how many victims he truly had. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.